You might have thought psychedelic drugs went away with the Woodstock generation, but Veterans Affairs researchers are studying the question of whether psychedelics can be effective treatments for certain mental disorders. For details, we turn to the mental health director at the James Peters Medical Center in the Bronx, Dr. Rachel Yehuda. Dr. Yehuda, good to have you on. It's my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. And let's begin with what kinds of disorders you think might be able to be helped in the first place. It sounds like not ordinary basic anxiety or that kind of thing, but maybe more severe types of mental disorders. Well, our research is going to be focused mostly on post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a very big problem at the VA. But there's a lot of evidence that suggests that psychedelic therapies might be useful for a lot of different kinds of mental health conditions. So we're just at the beginning of this really new, exciting era. And when you have a treatment that can cut across many different mental health disorders, we call that a transdiagnostic approach, which means that the approach isn't targeting one specific thing, but that it might be generally useful for a whole range of indications. All right. And before we get into how it might help, let's define the term psychedelic, because everybody thinks of lysergic acid diethylamide, but that's just one of a family of types of drugs. Yes, you're talking about LSD, um, which is perhaps the most notorious of the psychedelics. But psychedelics in general are powerful psychoactive substances that can alter perception and alter mood. They can affect the way you think or how you perform even cognitive tasks. They're associated with kind of very vivid sensory experiences. Some people might call them hallucinations, but you know that you're having a sensory experience, which is why it's kind of different from the hallucination where you can't trust what you're seeing, whether it's real or not. And the important thing to know about psychedelics is that they're physiologically safe. They don't really lead to dependence or addiction, although taking psychedelics without the right kind of container or supervision might lead to psychological vulnerability. So that is where you start to see some of the potentially adverse effects of them. But they're one of the safest physiologic drugs that we have in our toolkit. And they are therefore in other domains at this point, legal and sometimes prescribed? No, they're not legal. And that's a very important thing to emphasize. At this current time, we're sitting here today, and these drugs have not been approved for use, certainly not federally, certainly not by the FDA. But some states are definitely establishing initiatives that might make some plant medicines legal. But the compound that we are investigating right now at the VA called MDMA, it's not a plant medicine per se, and it really isn't legal anywhere that I know of in the United States right now. So when a compound isn't legal, you can still do research on it, but you have to go through a lot of steps to make sure that everybody's on board, the DEA, the FDA, (laughs) a lot of different regulatory bodies. But it is certainly possible to do research in a compound that hasn't yet been approved. Safe to say then that your work and the VA have gone through this groundwork to make sure that you can go ahead with these trials? You bet. Yeah. (laughs) Good. Well, the DEA, you don't want to fool around with. And therefore, it will be used in these experiments with people. We've already started. We've already been able to study the effects of MDMA in a handful of veterans right now. And we're screening and getting more in the pipeline. So yes, we're well underway with this. 
We're speaking with Dr. Rachel Yehuda. She's a mental health director at the James Peters Medical Center in the Bronx. And interesting place, the Bronx, New York City. This is where all of the work is taking place at this point, is in a single location? Yes, it's a single site study. It's going to be a four-year study, and we're planning to enroll between 60 and 68 combat veterans with PTSD. And what is the design of the experiment? That is to say, how does this work? You give them a dose of this, and what are you measuring? What are the inputs? What are the outputs? What does it look like? You know, in most research studies, an active drug is compared against a placebo condition. And the phase two and phase three trials of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy are designed in just that way. But what we're doing in our research is we're comparing three medicine doses of MDMA against two medicine doses of MDMA. And I should say that really it's MDMA-assisted psychotherapy because many people have the idea that the treatment involves just taking the psychedelic, but really there are hours and hours of psychotherapy that are associated with this treatment, including at least 12 90-minute sessions where the patient and therapists talk not under the influence of the medicine. So this is a comprehensive psychotherapy program that is assisted by being in an altered state sometimes. And so our question is, well, how many of these sessions do you really need? And the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy protocol was designed by the drug sponsor, MAPS, to be three sessions, but many people report feeling better after one or two sessions. Some might need more, but this is the beginning of seeing really how we can try this at home, so to speak. Once MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is approved by the FDA, then it'll be very important to try to understand how to use it in clinical practice. Right. So just to be clear, the drug is administered in conjunction or simultaneously with a talking session of 90 minutes? No, no, no. There are three 90-minute talking sessions even before Got the MDMA it. is administered. The actual dosing session is eight hours long, if you can believe it. The patient is sitting with or lying down uh, with two therapists by their side, and it takes about eight hours for the dose of MDMA that we're using to clear the system. Eight hours later, the patient is perfectly sober. And during the session, some patients like to talk and process their trauma. Some like to what we call go inside in the music with eye shades and headphones. And people are very different about that. But the next day after a session, there's another 90-minute integration session and two more to follow that, where if the patient didn't talk very much during the session, they'll talk a lot about what happened afterwards. And people wonder when they're going through a session sometimes whether they're going to forget all the things that happened to them. And that actually very rarely happens. This is a very vivid experience for people, and usually they can recreate it, especially the highlights, which is really the most important. This is fascinating, and it's nice to see that VA has done away with the 50-minute hour. You've got 90-minute <laughs> hours, and so it's a well, bargain. It's, gonna, it's, it's going to be very challenging to try to implement this kind of therapy, but... If there are good outcomes with it, which is our question, it's not our assumption, it's actually the question that we're trying to research, then it might really be more economical to front load these kinds of intensive treatments to prevent people from having 
PTSD therapy for years or sometimes even decades. I mean, PTSD has proven to be a very difficult and intransigent problem. And sometimes patients come for very long periods of time. They get a little better. And of course, like every other chronic condition, there are good times and bad times. And and an event can happen in the environment that can pull you back into a bad state. But you can go for long periods of time when things are okay, then something happens, you come back, you feel like you're at square one. So it is really a very difficult thing to treat. So if there's an opportunity to do something very comprehensive in the beginning, kind of think about it like a surgery model where you're going to do something very intense, but hopefully it'll forestall a bigger problem. And that's really the impetus behind these treatments. Can we do something that is really powerful and more sustained? And in whom will this work? And, you know, if you enroll in one of our studies, don't be surprised if we ask you to submit to a brain scan and blood testing for looking at molecular markers, because we're very interested in this question, for whom is this therapy ideal? And we know off the bat, we're not going in naively, that no treatment approach works for everyone. But I think it's very important to try to get a better handle on who are the best candidates for this treatment. What can we reasonably expect? And do you know or do you have an inkling of what the mechanism is by which the psychedelic drug helps with PTSD? Is it Sometimes shock therapy, you know, changes the brain in some way that seems to have a lasting effect for some people, or sometimes just thinking about lying on a beach in Hawaii does the same thing. What's the mechanism here, do you think? Well, that's a really interesting question. If you ask different people, they might be more forthcoming. You're asking me, so I'll have to tell you. The honest answer for me is that we're not really sure. A lot of the research that has been done has either been done in animal studies or in people that don't have PTSD or don't have other kinds of conditions. So we can't quite know for sure what is happening, but we do know some things. We know that these drugs definitely affect the serotonin system. We know that they disrupt neural circuits in the brain, which might really give the opportunity to disrupt or reform the way that neurons talk to one another in the brain. So I know there are a lot of terms like rewiring and turn on and all that stuff, but really what we're talking about is the ability of this drug to activate or suppress different neural circuits so that there's an opportunity to form different kind of connections and make different kinds of interpretations and foster different kinds of inputs and outputs in neurons. So we know the drugs promote gene expression and cellular neurogenesis, and that just means that cells can grow, and dendritic plasticity, which means that inside of neurons you can grow more branches that allow for more and better communication. But we haven't quite put it all together, and we don't know if these medicines are going to reverse kind of a problem that is in the brains of people already when they have a mental health condition such as PTSD, or whether the idea here is to just build a new circuit. Let's build something new here because we're not going back to something that was. We might be able to do something completely new going forward. So it's actually very exciting because the drug therapies that we have now in mental health are more predicated on this idea of fixing something, restoring, and this is rebuilding. And I really like that from the perspective of resilience and post-traumatic growth. In the meantime, though, don't try this at home. 
Well, I think the idea here is that the psychotherapy and the therapeutic container are doing a lot of the work. So that really has to be emphasized. For people that will try this at home, it's very important to understand where you might be able to have harm reduction if something does go wrong or who you might want to turn to if you get caught in a loop. By that, you know, people used to call it a bad trip. (laughs) Uh, But for some people, what comes up during a psychedelic journey is very, very intense. And so I wouldn't recommend it for somebody that really has a powerful mental health condition such as PTSD, because I think it can be very, very activating. And you might need somebody to talk to and that person's not there. Got it. Dr. Rachel Yehuda is Mental Health Director at the James Peters VA Medical Center in the Bronx, New York. Thanks so much for joining me. Delighted to do so. Thank you so much. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did 
you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, so he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, 
is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, Bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? And I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, 
and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha. And thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.